This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, millions of Canadians are mispronouncing common words. But is it really a big deal? Molly Babel, Associate Professor of Arts and Linguistics at the University of British Columbia, helps us understand how words are mispronounced and the fascinating way our brain understands language. And maybe it is no big deal. Texas went to war with social media and the world of weird things with Greg Fish helps us find out why they did that. Greg takes us through the governments and how they're looking at laws that could change how moderation around social media could work. It's a bit of a wild West. Plus, are you okay with RuPaul's Drag Race and a very special Canadian guest on the show? This is the Shift Podcast. Are you okay with roller coasters? Oh, yeah. I'm a We've little bummed. About them before. I love them. They're yeah, so good. it's been way too long since I've been on one. I'm actually the mm-hmm. last time I was at a roller coaster, a proper roller coaster. Uh, why am I blanking? It's been a while. It's been too long and yeah. they're way too much fun. And I wish Canadians had more access to mm-hmm. roller coasters and amusement mm-hmm. parks. Canada's Wonderland is amazing, mm-hmm. but there mm-hmm. should be 10 Canada's Wonderlands, not one. Mm-hmm. The sense. last time I was on a roller coaster, I didn't know how to spell COVID. So let's just start there. Mm-hmm. What are you, BK? You're a thrill seeker in life. You always like to do the exciting things. Yeah. Well, the roller coasters. Yeah, I don't mind the roller coasters. They're fun. I'm surprised Ryan didn't go on. You didn't go on that roller coaster in Vegas. That's on top of the, no. the building up there. I wanted to, yeah. but his schedule was packed, and my dad said no way in hell. Uh, he really? did it once. He's good. So because there's the one that's on top of New York, New York that goes through kind of the whole uh, sky. It goes out over the sides. Yes, and then there's the other one that's on top of the observation tower where you like face the ground. Uh, very, very high up. Yeah. And uh, I would have That's loved to scary. have done both. But I, uh, I was too drunk most yeah. of the time anyway. Well, not, not a good combination <laughs> nice. with roller coasters. I don't mind the classic roller coasters, the sit-down ones, even the ones where your feet hang out. That's fine. Uh, some of the, like, stand-up-y ones or where they hang you upside down forever. Not, mm-hmm. I, I don't need that. Like, I don't need that in my life. And, like, even the old wooden ones, too. The neck pain now that I'm an old man. Old man now. The last time I was on a roller coaster was the the wooden one here at the Peony, and it it hurt my neck and that was like three years ago so like now yeah. it would probably well, not i have a roller coaster idea um and uh i'll share that shortly here but since you brought up the pne um that's where we're going to start here have you ever wanted to get um launched down a 60 foot metal rod while traveling 45 kilometers an hour well now you can i am extremely proud to announce that the pacific national exhibition has entered into an agreement to purchase the largest single-ride investment in Playland's history, a brand-new Zamperla launch coaster, a $9 million marquee roller coaster that will open in Playland in the summer of 2024. Wow. That's cool. You know, though, what the P&E should actually invest in? Like security, so there's no riots at their concerts. Right? They They went out for five more people today on that. Yeah. Yeah. Seven now. Yep. Um, yeah, so that, that thing, I mean, you do have a good point. But maybe they wouldn't riot if they're like, we, hey. you know, like Ryan. We. Waiting for it. Yeah. All right. Um, really cool stuff. Single largest investment Playland has ever made for a permanent ride. Nine million dollars has not yet been named, uh, set to hit the PE uh, in a summer, a year and a half. 
So cool. It's the newest generation of roller coaster train vehicles as well as a new linear synchronous motor. Sounds fancy. So I there's lots of things that I would like to do here on the shift. And I would just like to renominate this idea. I've told you the story about this before, but now it occurs to me that I feel like we as the shift crew, we this could be a thing for us. We find an old Cadillac, we take a grinder, we cut the roof off, and we drive it. And we drive from roller coaster to roller coaster, and wherever we end up, we do a show from. Yes. And that is like a week and a half of our summer. And we just keep going till the car dies, and then we just leave it there, and then we come home. Sounds like the greatest. That's the greatest thing ever. Although I will say that you said we. Sleep in the trunk. Like eight yeah. times in that sentence, and every time you said mm-hmm. "we," all I could think about was "we." Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. so good. I was half listening, but I'm all for it. I'm all in. Let's do it. I don't sleep think on, sleep we in should, the trunk, sleep in the back seat. I don't think we should condone dumping the car. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just, Thanks. Just well, we can drop it off at a scrapyard. Okay, that's like that. better. I feel better about that. We can donate it to one eight seven seven Cars for Kids or whatever yeah. that annoying commercial is. Yeah. Um, okay, so. But I think that would be fun, right? Like, if we just go, it would be like the shift roller coaster tour. Raw tour. It'd be fun. Are you okay with RuPaul's Drag Race? Oh, let's go to the workroom. I have a. I have a mixed relationship with this show. I used to watch it religiously, religiously, like every episode air, we got to watch it. I started off kind of being apprehensive about it, but it sucked me in. It is so funny. So many amazing performers and drag queens lately. However, it's kind of just become oversaturated because the show got so popular that there are like 15 spinoff shows and it's just almost too much. However, I haven't watched a new season of this show in probably about two years. Mm-hmm. And after what we're going to talk about, I kind of have the itching to go back and maybe rewatch some stuff. But it is a very mm-hmm. entertaining, well-made, uh, pro- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Productive reality TV show, which is not easy to come by these days. I, I find it interesting because for me, it's not the kind of TV I like to watch. I'm not big on reality TV in general. Yeah. I like the premise of what it used to really stand for, Ru, what RuPaul stands for um, as a leader, just in general about identity. And I'm not even talking about gender stuff. I'm talking about just owning who you are and living into who you are. That kind of, yeah. you know, own your identity kind of kind of person. And RuPaul is amazing and is fantastic. The thing that gets me in, I is that it has to become so dramatic now because in today's world, if you want to watch people in drag, you can just go to bars that do it because it's so normalized. It's not this super fantastic thing that it used to be. Like, I feel like it used to be like, oh, drag queen. And now it's like, Tuesday, hey, Susie, right? Like, that's it. And so it, it's yeah, just so normalized right. and cool now yeah. that, that people just do it. So it's not such a big deal, um, it, which is probably progress, I think, is what we would... We would call that. Okay. Um, it began as a reality show. It turned into a massive empire. Uh, RuPaul in search for America's next drag superstar, which, of course, is you know some of those big Vegas shows and stuff like that, too. There are some really cool shows that you can go watch. So RuPaul plays the role of the host, mentor, judge for the series. Contestants are given different challenges each week. The makeup is fantastic. The costumes are amazing. The hair is out to here. It's great. The show earned RuPaul six consecutive Emmys, six consecutive Emmys from 2016 to 2021. 
for Outstanding Host for a Reality a reality Competition Program. The show itself has been awarded Primetime Emmy over and over and over again. There are all kinds of spinoffs, including Canada's Drag Race. Logo TV dropped the trailer for next season of Canada's Drag Race today. Iconic Drag Race stars will be judges, and listen closely for this very special guest that makes an appearance on the show. This look is everything. I couldn't take my eyes off of you. <laughs> and that's lunch, everyone. Who's ready for world domination? Hey! Please help me welcome the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau! <laughs> this one is about to go down in history. History. Um, so, yeah, the Prime Minister is popping in for drag race he's the first world leader in the rupaul founded competition series which has more than a dozen spin-offs sweden australia mexico united kingdom and more the episodes begin showing on crave starting on november 18th and um the prime minister is on one of the episodes so there you go what does that look like i guess we'll have to wait and see uh, i think it's okay so i think of course okay first off it's i think it's amazing that a world leader is going to be on this show Yep. Of course, the first world leader to be this is Justin Trudeau. However, I think this is really cool. I think this shows that this show, when it first came out, it was on the fringes of entertainment. It was for a very specific population, and it has grown so much now that a world leader of a G20 nation is coming on to say hi and to motivate the the the, the performers. And I think that's amazing because I've watched this growth and i imagine as a if, if i'm not gay but as a gay person like what that would mean for representation mm -hmm. and seeing that must be incredible so i think it's a cool step but i do kind of see the joke of yeah of course it's trudeau but well you know, and that's the thing right i mean TV. if it was joe biden or boris johnson that showed up boris on the show <laughs> everybody would yeah. be like they would be like oh my god can you believe it and because it's trudeau showing up on a costume glamour be center of attention look at me kind of show everyone kind of goes of course <laughs> but also hey that's kind of cool <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of neat. It is neat. Yeah. Um, and it's good. And I like the fact that, you know, uh, it used to be a big deal when you would go to a drag show. I mean, they're still amazing shows, but nowadays yeah. it's just, you know, people, it's just, you know, live your jam, man. Just go live your life with all the crap that's going on in the world. You know what? We need more people to just express themselves and just be true, who, true to they are. So whatever looks that looks like for people, just give her. And if that's big, bodacious purple hair on TV, singing songs or whatever it is, dancing, I bring, give me more. <laughs> that's all I say. We need more positivity. Are you okay with extended version? Pawn shops. Mm. Always in a shady area, you know? Yeah. They're, they're there's one near me and the guy who runs it looks nice but it like when i've kind of peeked my head inside to see it's like Ugh. but however i did go to a really cool pawn shop in south calgary that looked like it was family run and everybody's wearing like blue shirts with button up and walking around hey what can i get you everything's like nicely clean and everything so the idea in the business model, I think there's two ways you can run it, but for the most part, you're going to find, you know, a little bit more of a sketchier 
business i find at least in what hmm. i my experience yeah there's a row of them in niagara falls all like beside each other and he used to go in and look sometimes and be like i think most of the stuff in here is stolen yeah that's just it yeah like you can't from. tell me that the hammer and the skill saw and all those tools that you find in there that you know that someone was like hey by the way i'm gonna sell my entire career today somehow that wasn't stolen out of the back of a truck I mean, good deal if you need a skill saw, but still, I find it strange. You never know what you're going to find in there, though. There are some strange things. You could go and find yourself a skill saw. Maybe you could find yourself a nice little record player that, or guitar would be nice, too. But I bet you're probably not expecting to find a coffin. What I was trying to say, and maybe I didn't use the right word, was that marriage is like a coffin, and each kid is another nail. But as coffins go... Please don't say any more. <laughs> I love that quote. Uh, <laughs> marriage advice from the shift. Somebody actually did pawn off a used, yeah, not a new one, a used coffin so they could pay their bills. Our loans have gone through the roof with the economy being much lower and people needing more money. But this, a used transport coffin, was a first. It's selling for $499. One man who didn't want to be identified is pawning things, he says, a lot more often. As times have gotten tougher and just the inflation rates has caused me to come in probably once a month now selling things. Enjoy your new vacuum. Thank you. And buying things too like this old vacuum cleaner purchased by roxy kessler you can't afford anything because gas prices are so damn high that it, it raises the prices of everything you know food insurance you know everything the price is just skyrocketing you can't afford to buy anything new also rising cost of insurance in the united states 40 percent of unbanked or underbanked households have used pawn shops according to new statistical statistical what happened to that brain cell that is not even on there like it doesn't even say no, like i just my brain is like not only are we gonna insert a word like we're gonna like make it up too <laughs> my brain literally just put a word in and made it up at the same time my god okay well i'm gonna give me one of those that's a typo let me try that again in the united states 40 percent of unbanked or underbanked households have used pawn shops according to the national pawnbrokers association that's got weird punctuation in it because it says this wait a second we're off the track uh, but why not light the dumpster <laughs> fire 40 percent of unbanked or underbanked households have used pawn shops it sounds like Households have pawn shops. <laughs> but it's stats from the Pawn Association. Therefore, it must be no. law. Yeah, I can't. I can't on this one. I think you're just trying to distract from statistical at this point. <laughs> statistical was pretty good. Yeah. Got to tell you, that's pretty good stuff. Oh, I'm laughing so hard. The dogs come over to see if I'm okay. Yeah, I'm fine. Thanks, buddy. Pawn shops are also seeing more white-collar customers, too. The coffin is still up for sale, by the way, for the low, low price of $499. Bucks. Uh, dig your grave with debt. This is morbid, right? Yeah. Huh. All right. It's just um, like, come on. It's a pawn shop with a coffin. <laughs> come on. It's, just... it's great. Uh, yeah. It's, hey, it's little... positive thinking. Going to live forever. Okay, we've got to be sorry. quick. Are you okay with the World Series? 
Yeah, this year I am. Uh, the Houston Astros are my third favorite baseball team mm-hmm. behind the Toronto Blue Jays and my favorite, the Cubs. So seeing them win their second World Series with no cheating scandal was wow. very, uh, very nice. Yeah. Notice Ryan said no cheating scandal. He didn't say no cheating. Yeah, I'll be quick. Uh, used to be, not anymore. Okay, good. Um, the Fall Classic, really quite spectacular. Um, winning it, the single greatest achievement in baseball. Uh, no surprise that people want to party when it happens. Earlier this year, a gamer was hit by a stray bullet while playing online. What did I do there, too? Okay. A man is recovering hospital after a stray bullet hit him in the head right after the Houston Astros captured the World Series trophy. <laughs> Remember throwing lawn darts in the air? I gotta be quick. Houston police said the man was to be with family watching the game six of the World Series when it felt like a hammer struck him on the back of the head. A stray bullet from celebratory gunfire came down and hit him. Now earlier this year, a gamer was hit by a stray bullet while playing online with some friends, but his headphones stopped the bullet. It wasn't for these on my head. I mean, it probably would have went through. 18 year old Jonathan Gonzalez says he's lucky to be alive. He says he felt something hit his head one night when he was playing a video game. It felt like if you were wearing a, like a bike helmet and someone just smacks the top of your head. He didn't realize what happened until he saw the bullet hole in his window and then realized the bullet bounced off of his headset and ended up in his wall. You can see the damage. It actually bent this piece of metal right here and it went through... That's from Inside Edition right there. This is the Shift Podcast. We were surfing through the internet like we do here on the Shift and trying to find some things to talk about, what's really cool. And I fumbled upon an article about cars. Now, I like cars, so this always gets my attention. A big one for me is I always feel smart because I say Porsche. That's a big one. And so for when when we say words properly. And I've always known that BMW is actually the improper way to say it. Um, if you want to say the name, at least as the company would like you to say it, it's actually not proper. Now in the English language, sure it works. So this is where we're going to start our conversation. And that was the idea behind all of this was actually cars. Turns out that most of the vehicle brands that are in the world today, we say most of them wrong, um, but we're going to go into much more than just that. My guest here uh, that you hear is Molly Babel, Associate Professor, EDI Chair at the uh, Department of Linguistics at UBC, Speech Sciences. Um, Thanks for being here, Molly. I think we should probably establish what the hell is, what the hell, what the hell is speech sciences? um, And, you know, what is it that you do? Because I think most people think I have a stutter or a lisp, therefore that's the kind of support that's out there, but it's so much more than that. Yeah, it, it really is. So uh, speech science as uh, is kind of just this broad class of studying spoken language uh, and also studying uh, not just spoken language, but visual languages, signed languages, uh, but studying languages from a scientific perspective. And so that means kind of uh, quantifying, analyzing, uh, trying to understand how it works uh, as as a system in the the work that I do I work in the the verbal and auditory domains within speech and language so wanting to understand uh, speech acoustics so why does a speaker sound the way they do the first starting principles for that come from the the physics uh, of the system um, I want to understand how do we understand speech uh, and language and again from the the verbal and auditory modes kind of 
of how, what's the physical working of our auditory infrastructure that allows us to uh, unpack and decipher the frequency components uh, in speech. And then you, we aren't just sensory systems walking around. We have minds and so we have to understand how cognition also plays a role in interweaving mm-hmm. these things together. The last thing I'll kind of tack on to that is that we are also not these robots in the world, right? We're, we're social entities that live in a creative world where we need to express our identities. And so you kind of can't study speech and language without also considering that, yeah, we are individuals in communities um, with agency projecting uh, parts of ourselves, uh, sometimes intentionally and sometimes unintentionally. Mm-hmm. And so many people will say, but language is so fluid, which it is, but it's, um, but at the same time, it's actually not. The structures are very, very secure and uh, they have been for a long time. Mm-hmm. And we often don't look at words like this as, hey, by the way, the English language, hey, we got the slang and stuff like that, lazy language. And let's just all agree, Western culture, we're terrible at it. We're the worst at just literally slaughtering our own language. But the um, it, it is it really is this really cool structure that we don't look at it and go, oh, by the way, that's actually a tool in my life. It's a tool for my brain to interpret it all and translate it and put it into my head. And then for my my mind to go, oh, I perceive that word as this agreement that a bottle of ketchup is a bottle because somebody called it a bottle mm-hmm. and I know what a bottle looks like. Right, right. Yeah. All that stuff. That's wild. Yeah. I love it. Um, now, of course, for me being a radio guy, it's kind of a jam. So I think it's important. How do you feel? Do you feel like it's just such this important unutilized tool like I do? Um, well, let's see. What do I, what do I think about speech? I mean, when I, when I, uh, my, actually when I, when asked about it being an underutilized tool, one of the first things that comes to mind is when I was in graduate school and I, I took a lot of, uh, courses in another department. And I guess I won't name the department to not call them out, but a lot of people were focused on You don't want to language. beat up on the other departments? <laughs> well, it was, it was <laughs> like, because I, I can get to the point without kind of uh, belittling, uh, you know, a whole a whole discipline. Uh, but the, the other uh, graduate students in the class and the instructor tended to focus on language in its written form. And it just, it drove me wild because like, yes, of course, there's beauty, immense beauty, infinite beauty in the written word. But when you put things uh, into uh, a spoken modality or again, a signed modality, you're adding an infinite number of dimensions to it, right? Uh, the, when you, when you speak a word, when you sign a word, you can't produce it the exact same way twice. And every iteration of it kind of carries with it, uh, an additional kind of component and layer that kind of gives us this distribution of what that word is and kind of points to different aspects of it, right? I can say the word, let's just be, uh, really simple with it. I can, I'm about to say the word, the word C-A-T out loud. So everyone mm-hmm. can imagine kind of how they would produce it themselves. And We've can, all said it in our head right now. Yeah, exactly. I can say to my native dialect uh, and have it be a super uh, tight cat sounding pronunciation. And I could try to kind of summon the fact that I lived on the West Coast for uh, 15 years and I'm going to sound more like cat. Uh, and different pronunciations of that are going to kind of cue different things uh, about my identity, about my life experience. Uh, these sorts of things. It's just, it, there's, there's just so much there. And while I'm saying cat, right, people can, uh, do other, make other assessments, uh, about my voice, right? Um, about my gender, my, my age, uh, how I feel about cats, things of that mm-hmm. sort, right? Yeah. 
Well, and that's the distinction, I think, that to, to your point about the written word is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. And it's, a, it's, it's such an art to be able to just choose the words and organize the alphabet and those words in a way that elicits emotion. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. that is so good. But we can't control the way it's interpreted in their head. We can't control the tone. We can't control the way it's read. That can sometimes be circumstantial or emotional, all those things. When we're speaking like you speak of, like, cat, like, and then all of a sudden now we've applied angry. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. where in in the written word, we have to use other words or descriptors to be able to create that. Mm -hmm. So there is so much more the third dimension, this bubble of words versus this linear, put it on paper. So I totally get that. That's fascinating. And I think I kind of see how it's sort of an endless kind of an endless study for you. It must just, because not only is the way you say it, but the way you hear it. And then, you know, for every speaker, there's a listener, right? For every hot, there's a cold and, yeah, and, yeah. and all of that stuff's at play. Right. Yeah. The, uh, the, I mean, as, as listeners in the world, so a, a lot of my own research focuses on the kind of perceptual and processing side uh, where you're, we can, we can basically always learn how to understand something new. Uh, so I can give you a pronunciation uh, of a word that you've never heard before, and I can get you to understand it so quickly. And so a, a, a lot of my work fun- uh, focuses on what are the mechanisms that kind of allow your mind to kind of constantly adapt and to shift mm-hmm. what it accepts as a reasonable pronunciation, as an, an interpretable pronunciation uh, of a particular word. Now, we started with cars, mm-hmm. and sometimes once you see it, you can't unsee it, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, a, that's certainly a fair, true with, like, brand name fair, things like cars. That's yeah. right, and yeah. it's it's such a philosophy for life. You know, once somebody explains to you um, how a certain part of the food industry works or a grocery store, when you go into that grocery store, you can have wieners. Once somebody explains to you how wieners are made, you can't really unsee it every time you see a wiener, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And... um that that really is true with words too. And we started with cars. I said uh, Porsche and Porsche. And many people will say the car brand Porsche makes sense phonetically. That's how it looks. Um, you know, that's how many people say it. But yeah. once somebody says, "Did you know that that's actually the incorrect way to say it?" The correct way to say it is Porsche. And even if your habit is Porsche, as soon as you say Porsche, that something in your brain, a little firework goes. Oh, by the way. Remember when someone told you that's not how you say it? So you get into this whole experience of it all thing that starts happening too. Yeah, yeah. And then when you shift your pronunciations, right? So you start with Porsche, you switch to Porsche. Kind of whether you're someone who's going to switch to Porsche after that correction uh, from from a friend really uh, is largely determined by the amount of social value you put into saying it right, right? As a, mm. as a, a self-declared car person, right? You're going to, you know, part of, Part of your identity is about kind of saying these words correctly, right? You want mm-hmm. the social cachet that's going to come along, come along, come along with that. So you're going to be more likely to then switch, do this categorical shift uh, to a new pronunciation than someone who doesn't care about cars or doesn't mm-hmm. like the person who corrected them. <laughs> Or doesn't like the person who drives the car and never uses the signal light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We put all kinds of stuff on it. Um, Okay, well, let's start with some of these examples that we have here. One of the best ones was a Super Bowl commercial from so long ago, uh, uh, more than 10 years ago. It was uh, Hyundai, the car company Hyundai. Mm -hmm. And this is, I think, indicative of most of these scenarios where we have a translation from a native language into a Western or at least an uh, English version of the word. Mm -hmm. Hyundai 
they in the commercial they were like it's not hyundai it's hyundai like sunday <laughs> and even uh, today i was listening to another uh, radio station uh, as i was driving and I heard a live announcement from a sponsor. And what went off in my head was, does the sponsor ever get mad at Hyundai? Or does the sponsor just kind of go, oh, well, it's just the way it is. But we get an awful lot of these wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we get them wrong. Uh, I think one of the things you mentioned earlier is kind of like spelling pronunciation. So uh, some of these words we get wrong because we kind of spell them out the way we think they should be be spelled. Uh, not that English spelling conventions uh, really do us <laughs> a lot of good yeah, a lot of the time. Right. It's right. not like it's a good map. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a terrible map. But, you know, some of these come around that way. Some of them uh, are, uh, yeah, just the first time you're introduced to it, that's what you latch on to. Uh, others, um, like uh, Mazda is one that comes to mind for this. We're kind of borrowed from Japanese uh, the 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 ah sound that's in Japanese we don't have that particular ah in English so some mm-hmm. varieties of English go the direction of so and I'm, I'm gesturing here that you know the ah that they have in Japanese is like in the middle and so you mm-hmm. can uh, take some varieties of English and say okay well I'm going to take it back and that's the Mazda pronunciation and you have some varieties of English uh, where you can take it to the front and that's the Mazda uh, pronunciation yeah. where you yeah. kind of but you, you're taking something that just doesn't really exist in English and adapting it in one of two reasonable ways. We find this with lots of R's um, when you get into some Arabic languages and the KH's and the K's, mm-hmm. uh, even in some of the more Eastern European languages where the K's are silent or more of a ch sound to them. Um, you even get that in Dutch. Yeah. So like we, it seems to be that when we have words that we're trying to pronounce, say a Dutch word in English, that we try to shape it differently. And then there becomes this new agreement on, hey, that's pretty close. Let's go with it. Yeah. I mean, the musician Bach, I feel, is like a, a good example of this. And again, yeah, like the car example where you you say it with the what's called a velar fricative, the Bach. Uh, if you See, I didn't know that. Yeah, How do you say you that again? It's a what? A velar fricative. Um, oh wow! Velar is referencing the part of the mouth where that kind of point of contact is. So um, it's the same place where you make like a k sound, mm-hmm. but you're doing what's called a fricative, which you're not cr- creating a complete obstruction in your vocal tract. You're just moving your tongue uh, close to the top of your mouth, and then you're driving. Actually, this is kind of car talk. Then you're driving high velocity air through it so that it creates right. turbulence. Uh, it's yeah, where yeah, that's good. This is I like that. This is where. Uh, Speech science uh, kind of shares a lot of commonalities with the yeah, uh, uh, other scientific disciplines where you can talk about something called Reynolds numbers uh, that's determining the quality of the airflow uh, of the fluid, really, uh, through through a point of constriction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. Now, normal people, yeah. they record, we, you, me, and uh, every, people say this to me all the time. I hate the sound of my voice. Dude, try being on the radio and hearing you everywhere you go and hating the sound of your voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we record our voice greeting on our phones, yeah. hi, thanks for calling Molly, leave me a message. And then you listen back to it. Um, for us, normal people, we're just, ah, I can't believe I sound like that. But for you... Do you really get picky with the way you speak when you hear the recordings of you speaking? And do you look at it and go, wow? <laughs> no. I think you're so well-spoken, so I, I'm curious. I do. Uh, so uh, 
I basically never listen to myself talk. <laughs> I try to avoid it uh, at, at all at all costs. Uh, mostly, well, I mean, I guess there's a couple different ways to look at it. So, you know, teaching is really fun. It is fun to communicate uh, to students, to, uh, to to radio host, to anyone in the world, right? But uh, if you, if I focus too much on the kind of the quality of what I sound like, it takes the fun out of it. Um, it does. It just, it just, it's, it's. It's no longer about the ideas. It's uh, about me self-monitoring about, do I, do I sound too tinny? Do I sound too tense? Right. Uh, yeah. that's, Are my plosives uh, too plosive Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? Was I positioned oh. appropriately from the mic? I don't want to think about those things when the quality yeah. of it uh, isn't what I really need to be concerned about. Yeah. So let's contrast that yeah. from how to speak properly. The magic actually comes from when we don't speak properly. It's sort of like life. The magic comes from all of the things we get wrong, and then we learn the way to do it. When someone tells you a story, it's usually when they lean into things that maybe aren't quite right, maybe a, a little bit more on the, oh, I can't believe, whatever, that that's where we actually connect in the failure of all this. So when you say don't speak properly, what exactly, what, what kinds of speech errors are you thinking about? When I say don't speak properly, I think I take on this social expectation. We've been conditioned to believe that we're supposed to speak a certain way. It's one of the first things that I'll tell somebody who's new in radio and that comes to consult on or public. Some of my public speakers is great that I I coach for public speaking. Mm -hmm. When they'll come in and they'll say, you know, okay, well, I'm going to stand up in front. We have this notion that we're supposed to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. It's almost like this Walter Cronkite. Well, that's how we're supposed to speak when we're in front of the people. And it's supposed to be like that. And so some people will get up in front of their sales staff at work. And that's how they start to talk. And then you you can even hear it. Sometimes on TV shows, they'll do it for fun. And I don't even know why I'm talking like this all of a sudden. So I, I say it from that perspective of this conditioned thing we have in our head of how we're supposed to uh, be perfect when we speak or sound a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I guess so. One of the things that comes to mind as you're saying that is in the the context of things like radio, in the context of various positions of power, right? That like sales example that you give. Um, I think we want to be really careful to not restrict uh, our expectations about the kind of voice that's allowed to fill that space too much, because then we run into this idea that public voices are just uh, voices that sound a particular way, and we. Uh, I mean, really clear things that we want to be careful we're not constraining. So if you have a non-native accent, right, of course you still belong in the radio. Of course you still belong in these positions of power. Uh, the fact that you have a non-native accent has nothing to do with your abilities uh, in those uh, domains, right? Um, but uh, That's an about, important takeaway. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. But like then like uh, kind of an example that also comes to mind is, yeah, if I were talking to you the way I talk to my 15 month old baby. Right. That right. would be very inappropriate. Right. Like right. how that is such a um, yeah, that 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 would not uh, align uh, with even like the expectations we want to bring uh, to, to this. Right. Um, but that just kind of points to the different styles we have. Well, and, and I think that's that's really great for people to hear because there isn't a way to speak. There isn't a way to do it. I would always encourage, look, you're the only person that sounds like this. 
embrace it, <laughs> live into it. And sure, there are some techniques that maybe you can be heard better by the people in yeah. the back, or you can be a little bit cuter to the baby, or maybe a little bit uh, intimate in your in your private speak to your, your favorite person in the world when you're trying to be gentle, right? So I mean, there are some tactical things we can learn, sure, but embrace it. It's yours. You are. It's like your fingerprint. You are the only one that can do it that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I like your point of kind of, yeah, uh, there are kind of tricks you can use to, to kind of to be more clear, right? We all, uh, we, I guess one way to say it, we could all improve our public speaking skills. Even the best public speaker could improve their public speaking skills, right? And what kind of stylistic conventions can you bring to that exercise to make yourself uh, a more clear communicator, right? Yeah, that's a, a fun thing to think about. And yeah, different individuals differ in uh, how well we understand their voices independent of like the accents they bring to it, right? It's about kind of just how you move your mouth. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, now, I'll get all philosophical on it because this is, you're the scientist and I'm I'm the hippie. <laughs> um, that just as, because you said that, if everyone can improve the way we speak without a doubt, just like we all can improve how we write a note to somebody or a letter to the boss. Mm. I, I just want to throw out there, just so you know, if you want to practice this, you don't actually have to do it in front of people. You're talking to yourself all the time anyway. And if you would like to get great experience on how to speak to other people, be mindful of the way you speak to yourself. It starts there. Because in the moment of your public speaking, you're standing in front of the crowd and all of a sudden something happens, you forget, you lose track, whatever, and you get that feeling in your belly. We've all had it. And you're like, oh, how am I going to get out of this? That's the moment where your public speaking or your, excuse me, your internal voice, the way you speak to yourself, that's the reset that starts to happen. And so in that moment, that's where your cue is going to be. So in all things, when you are nervous and you're on a date and you're like, uh, hi, I, you look pretty, right? Or where we say something stupid, like you're prettier than my ex or something. And then in your brain, your brain goes, Oh, you're stupid. And it really starts right there. And so when we can practice up here, everything else comes and that's really cool. And again, it sort of speaks to that earlier part you said about the science, about how we go from the spectrum of waves, vibrations into your brain, into your ears and then into your brain. And then where does it go? So all of these things are dancing. Yeah. And I mean, it's really, uh, it's really magic. Magic, kind of how it happens. I mean, it's not magic. It's it's science. It's the real world. But when you think about kind of all that's involved in the sequence of communicating, it's really it's really amazing that we do this seemingly so effortlessly when it's a, a seriously complex task that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So effortlessly, so good. Okay, let's have some fun with some of these cars. By the way, mm -hmm. I'll get your thoughts on on how these come across because some of these are just lost in translation too. So we're not being that square on this. We talked about Hyundai and Hyundai. Uh, Subaru comes up. I don't even know how to say it properly, but it's the uh, we often it's because it's a Japanese car. We often just get the emphasis on the wrong syllable, right? Like we, we just kind of get that one wrong. Um, Subaru and all those different ways to say it. Porsche and Porsche comes up. I like Volkswagen. Volkswagen uh, would be the proper way to say it. Um, if you wanted to try and say it, Germany, <laughs> if you will. Um, you know, is there anything wrong with a Volkswagen person saying I drive a Volkswagen versus I drive a Volkswagen? I mean, it, it takes a lot of effort on the speaker's part to do. I mean, it's called code switching when you switch from basically one language to another and saying it as Volkswagen as opposed to Volkswagen. You're you're so 
we say it as Volkswagen because we're adapting it to English phonology, the sound patterns of English. But if you switch to Volkswagen, that's uh, keeping it within the the German frame of reference. And it feels like, uh, you know, you're not just saying I drive a Volkswagen, but you're trying to you're you're kind of just cueing all this other German stuff that goes along with it. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. And that could also send the listener on a wild path of their own of what the heck you're talking about. But if the guy's name is, you know, Ferdinand, mm-hmm. but you want, I don't even know how to say Ferdinand properly in German, but uh, if that's what it is, you, you sort of want to respect the person because you'd like to try to get their name right. So yet we have sort of two different sets of rules going on. No, that, that respect thing is huge. And I feel like, uh, for, for me, uh, I, uh, get so nervous when I learn someone's name for the first time because, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, especially if it's a, if it's a, uh, a name that I'm not familiar with, either in English or not, right? Uh, um, that you want to be respectful, uh, but that respect involves like not wanting to make a to do about how the name is also different, right? Like that's right. uh, yeah. But well, you don't want to sound like you're trying to impersonate the yeah. other language or do some sort of fake accent, but at the same time, try to do uh, a little bit of credit to mm-hmm. the proper mm-hmm. pronunciation. Mm-hmm. I have a friend of mine that I worked with. Her name was Kazma. That's what she went by her English name and the proper way to say her name is Kazma. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we used to try. Yeah. Right. And so when we were around friends, we would, you know, we would say it and it was always worth a giggle and she would correct us if we got it wrong. Uh, yeah. But when you'd introduce to stranger, it'd be like, Kazma, this is Molly, Molly, this is Kazma. Right. And so then it, there's almost no pressure to, hey, by the way, you got to do it the way that we try to do it every day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a nice example. I mean, I think sometimes it's when uh, things are just a little bit different. That's when uh, challenges also really arise as opposed to kind of just a, a completely novel form. I'm just thinking mm-hmm. about names like Kristen, Kirsten, Kirsten, those stress right. so much. Yeah. They're just Tanya's small and manipulations uh, on each other. And I hear one and kind of they all get activated. And then I'm like, which one did I just get? Laura's and Laura's, Tanya's and Tanya's, Kirsten's and Kirsten's. We often get names wrong and very subtle differences between so many of them. But is it really a big deal? This all comes from inspiration around car names and how we often get car names wrong. We do it, Lance. Lancia, stuff like that. Porsche, Porsche. Our guest right now is Molly Babel. Now, Molly is an associate professor and EDI chair at the University of British Columbia in the Department of Linguistics, Speech Sciences, and all things to do with speech. So is it really such a big deal, Molly, when we get these names wrong, or is it something that we just got to try to do and should embrace? One thing to throw in there with respect to this, I mean, we're talking about names, but this is one of the ways in which English is uh, a unique and a challenging language is that we borrow words all the time. And English has so many basically extra words that are these permutations on meaning. Um, and yeah, we do that with names in English too, or we're just really open about the kinds of names that you can have. Uh, yeah. Well, in today's world, yeah, then you get... First name is one language. Second name is a different language. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So you might have a French last name and a, and an English first name. So then what do you do, right? So it's now you're flipping between, what you, you called it? Codes? Code no. switching, yep. Code switching. Yeah. Um, from first name to last name. So I think what I'm hearing in all of this is a little bit of grace for everybody to just keep trying, really. Yeah. 
It's kind of what it boils down to, which is cool. Okay, so I want to get through a couple of these other ones just because I, I did say that we would. BMW. Yeah, what's which the right is, way to do that one? Uh, so BMW is, many people would say it's uh, BM, BMV because know, right? uh, the W is a V in German, essentially. But it's actually, in English, it's Bavarian Motor Works. But much like Germany and Deutschland are two different, completely different words, it's actually Bayerisch Motor and Werke. So it's actually BMW if you wanted to say it properly. So BMW is actually BMW. Mercedes-Benz, we also say that one wrong. It's Mercedes-Benz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I like to watch, I've just fallen in love with Formula One. And when you listen to those Europeans say Ferrari and and Mercedes and those different words, and they say them completely differently than we do, which is uh, super fun. Uh, Maybach is not Maybach or Maybach. Um, it's, you know, it's the, it's again, it's your Bach. What did you call that? That was that Bach. fancy word you used? Yeah. Vila for yeah. yeah. Holy. Yeah. That's so big. But if we call uh, inside Mercedes, we call AMG, which is not AMJ. It's, it's AMG uh-huh. because of the letters and the translations between the alphabet. The list goes on and on and on Audi and Audi and Jaguar and Jaguar and all of them, Tesla, Tesla, we get them all wrong. Most of them we do. It's fascinating. Do you have a favorite that is common that you run into from a word or a or a thing that you see that makes you go, oh, that's so cool when it happens? Uh, well, actually, so uh, one example that came up uh, at my dinner table the the other day was so a lot of English speakers have a hard time with the word uh, chipotle. Uh, mm-hmm. They say chipotle, and that mm-hmm. swapping of the order of the consonants is just kind of falling in line with what's the more common uh, kind of uh, called phonotactics, the sequence of sounds that we have in English. Um, but my four-year-old was saying chipotle, chipotle, chipotle. We were we were having uh, uh, yeah, a Mexican meal, and uh, I mentioned to her that some people have a hard time saying that. I'm surprised that you're saying it so well, and she was just like, "Why?" <laughs> right. In a typical four-year-old sass. Um, but, uh, (laughs) so that one's on my mind of, yeah, uh, with the kind of the lesson being that things become more challenging the later you're introduced to them. If you're introduced to pronunciations at a younger age, it's all, you know, it's just what your system's made of. Yeah. And some of us have a hard time. My son is similar. He's the opposite. He has, gets the words jumbled or letters jumbled up every now and then Mm -hmm. his were, um, uh, sniggle light for signal light. Oh, nice one. Yeah. Uh, you often hear like the aluminum and aluminum yeah. and ambulance, ambulance, mm-hmm. ask and axe. Yeah, yeah, that one's really those. common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, genetic or genetically, excuse me, generationally, you know, the millennia, millennials will often have slight. Oh, another one is versus. Man, we just made up the, there's a whole generation. They just made up the word verse as in like we're playing against each other. Uh, you know, we gotta, we're going to play volleyball and it's Molly versus Shane. I've and never like, heard you that. just made that's fascinating. Oh my god, it's everywhere. I've even heard it in the news oh, wow. recently. Yeah. Newscat young newscasters using it. Yeah. Um, oh, and they then they fake it and it's more and say if it's hockey, it would be the Calgary Flames are versing the Vancouver Canucks tonight. That's so cool. It's, it's amazing how <laughs> it happens. Amazing, yeah. I mean, I part of me wants to stand up for the come on, say it right. And the other part of me, like, that's awesome. That a, it's just like this chunk of generation that says it differently. This happens, um, yeah. And the impact of all that. Um, what were the other ones? Astronaut was Addersnot. Um, yeah, and more. So we've all got them. So I guess that's probably the question I'll ask the audience. 877-399-9898. What's the one word that either you don't ever get right or someone that you know, and it, you just get a kick out of it? Because I think that's what, that's what I take, Molly, is that let's just work hard at it, be great at it, 
embrace it, but let's get a kick out of it. Yeah. And I love your, the way you said it earlier, be gracious about it. When someone does something that's quote wrong with language, don't hold it against them. It's just, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not technically wrong. Yeah, I mean, yeah. technically the uh, dictionary companies, they just change the words when they want to. <laughs> they just do it. So why not change the agreement? Uh, thank you so much for being here, Molly. This is fascinating. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. Greg Fish joins us, worldofweirdthings.com. I'm Shane Hewitt. Okay, Fishy, we are going on a trip here, man. We are going uh, with your article from worldofweirdthings.com into war with social media. Dun, dun, dun. Now, on the surface, that sounds fantastic because I think we should probably go to war with social media a little bit. Is this a good look the way you're going with it? So this is not necessarily where we want the war to go. This article is about a Texas law that's kind of making its way through the U.S. court system and could potentially serve as a model for other governments to essentially control what information and what narratives play on social media while removing private companies' ability to kind of regulate their own businesses. So let me explain exactly what the law really is. The law essentially states that any sufficiently large social media network cannot remove or hide or in any way or do anything literally to any post that is marked as political or is supposed to be political in nature. So if you post something that you say is a political statement, if you think that you don't get the right amount of engagement from it, you can sue the social media company and say they are shadow banning me. They're hiding my post. I want some sort of restitution for it. If you post something that is very aggressive, if you post misinformation and the social media network removes it, you can sue them and say they're hiding, they're censoring my political speech. So, and, and they're censoring me and they would have to restore you. So essentially what it's doing is, it, is it's banning moderation of social media. It's banning banning, actually. Um, so let me translate that because you said shadow banning and not everybody understands what that is. That's basically when there would there's the assertion that there could be a filter or algorithm or something going on in social media that when you spoke about gasoline, your post gets pushed down in priority. It gets hidden. It kind of gets banned quietly. Now, why would a post about gasoline get banned quietly? Well, what if the owner of that social media network happens to own an electric car company and you're talking about gasoline for cars? So if somebody had that agenda, they could be like, well, I want to sell electric cars, hypothetically, of course. There is no recent news story that would lead us to believe this scenario could be true in any way. Certainly can't think of one. Um, so if there was a guy who owned an electric car company and also owned a social media network, that person could quietly put in a little filter that says anybody who talks about gasoline driven cars, shh, shush, 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 don't post that one, let it sink. And so that would be essentially a simplistic version of what shadow banning looks like. Fair? 
Yep, that's perfectly fair. That's exactly what it is. So why Texas went to war with social media is the headline, and the link is up at shiftheads.ca. Greg Fish, why did Texas go to war with social media? Because a lot of prominent political figures in Texas and the American conservative movement and in the Western uh, right wing assert that because their posts don't get the kind of engagement that they want because they have numerous influencers who have been banned for posting basically pro-coup, pro-insurrection messages, threatening civil war, threatening acts of domestic terrorism, posting election misinformation. They're saying that social media is censoring them. It's limiting their reach. It's it's limiting their uh, it's muzzling them politically while giving an unfair advantage to the left. Now there are scholars who actually go out and study this, and they can tabulate literally millions and millions of posts and the metadata about them. And they have concluded that actually, in fact, on Twitter and on Facebook, conservative leaning and right leaning influencers and pages and accounts and and um, information gets a significant boost over apolitical content and left-wing content. In fact, apolitical content actually performs better than left-wing content, and right-wing content promotes uh, is, is promoted much more than both of those combined. If you're wondering, is there a social media slash uh, forum site that is politically neutral? Yes, there is. It's called Reddit. Um, and in fact, it tends to have the more uh, moderate, political communities on it. So it's something about that that quest for constant engagement to show you ads that is creating that incentive because a lot of those posts are based in culture war rhetoric. So they're, prom- they're uh, promoted to get outrage. People react and respond. A lot of people, not just conservative, not just conservatives, but liberals who very much hate the post, but need to feel the need to respond to it, uh, quote tweet it, reply, what have you, and that all adds to exposure. So what's actually happening is that people are seeing the posts, they don't like them, or don't want to engage with them, or they reject the message. So the content isn't as popular as they think, and then, or periodically, what happens is when the content is incendiary enough, the network comes in and takes it down because of their advertisers. Their advertisers will basically say, like, let, let's say you run a company and you find your ad screenshot right next to someone who's basically saying, you know, let's bring back the clan. We must save. You know, uh, we must save our people from extinction because of the evil Jews. Now, you have you did not place that ad to that incendiary. Greg is Jewish, by the way. I'm just going to insert that, so that's why he's yeah. comfortable saying that. <laughs> just so you know. Yes, I see that. I see that all the time. But now imagine yeah. your. Uh, but now imagine your ad next to it, screenshot in an article somewhere that talks about yeah. how. There's all this anti-Semitism and all this racism and all this bigotry on the social network. You as an advertiser don't want to be involved because now your PR people have to go and handle the scandal. It costs you time. It costs you money. So you're going to say, well, either clean it up or I'm not advertising on your network anymore. And there goes the revenue, which, again, someone is currently discovering uh, after impulsively buying a social media platform. Mm -hmm. So, but that brings us right back to to 
the Texas legislature, which basically says, well, no, there's no way that this could be true because what's really happening is we're getting censored because we don't get the engagement. We don't get the agreement. We don't, we're not getting what we want out of the social media narrative. Therefore, we're gonna want, we want to make it illegal to do that kind of moderation. So I'll translate this a little bit. There's two things going on. Number one, there is the intentional suppression of things. I mean, imagine if you were an online business and you had a blog and maybe you like to talk about Bibles and you're like, hey, our Bibles are great. They're got beautiful gold leaf crosses on it and a decoration. And that is beautiful here. Look at our Bibles. And then because you're like, well, I'd like to make money. So I'm going to put some ads on my page. And then your the ads aren't filtered. And next to your beautiful blog post about this amazing new Bible you're releasing, there is big booty girls link right above it. Because there's no, like, that's the kind of things that happen uh, online. Now, Fish, the insinuation that for-profit businesses would manipulate things for profit seems complicated, but it shouldn't be a surprise. I'll say this. Hypothetically, if you were looking for a place to work, you have a laptop, you have your headphones, you're like, I'm going to go find a nice place to get my work done today. So you go into the free workspace and then you're like, ah, it's kind of loud in here and the chair is uncomfortable and the coffee is $7 uh, and they still use more plastics than ever before, even though they say they're eco-friendly and um, and all that stuff. Again, total coincidence if you assume what that might be with any connection. I'm just hypothetically saying those things. The so, But then it's free, right? So you don't really get a say. And you shouldn't be upset that it's free and all the things that are going on. It's not really a workspace. It's a coffee shop. Or you can spend a little bit of money and you can rent a space in a workspace and it's quiet. And you do get a say. And you're like, can I have a more comfortable chair? And they're like, absolutely, paid subscriber. You're our customer. Here's your more comfortable chair. Right? Like, we can't complain about things that are free because they're not actually free. We don't get a say in that. It is not free speech. It is a capitalist business that is making money. But we treat it like it's free and it's ours. And it's like we actually have a say, which we don't. I think it's even sim- it, it's even simpler than that. A business has the right to operate the way that it wants. It, if it believes that certain people are a liability because of the content that they post, they should be free to say, no, we don't want you on our platform. We pay for the servers. We pay for the bandwidth. We pay for the techno- we paid for the technology that allows this to happen. And you're getting in the way of us making money. And it should be as simple as that. And in fact, the very same court system that said that this law should be good to go also ruled the same way that businesses are private property and their policies are private property. Therefore, you can't complain that the business doesn't want to work with you or deal with you. You know, it's kind of like in your house, if someone comes into your house and you don't want them there, you can tell them to leave. It's your private property. And if they stay, they're trespassing. You can have them removed. Mm -hmm. But the government doesn't come in and say, well, you're... Your place is big enough. You should be able to accommodate these people, even if they're waving a knife, even if they're screaming at your face, even if they're, you know, tracking model over the place. You have to have you have to have them here. And then the other poisonous clause in the Texans law says you can't not offer the service in Texas. So it's basically like saying, you know what? Fine. If they can't leave my house, I'm leaving my house and selling it. And the government says, no, you can't do that. You're now 
under house arrest. So mm. nothing of this works. It completely disregards any basis of private property, private ownership. Like it's kind of bizarre that the very same people who say capitalism and and free enterprise and 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 small business and this is the way to this is the way to the best of society all of a sudden turn to communists who say, well, no, comrade, this is our public square and you cannot right. leave and also you must provide this for us at whatever cost you have to incur. So this is, I, I would say that's that's even the bigger problem because it ultimately really, here's what it comes down, comes down to. It comes down to people who have posted their ideas and say, this is, this is the free, this is a public square, this is the free exchange of ideas, this is, these are my ideas out there. And people look at those ideas and say, no, thank you, we don't really want anything to do with them, please leave, we, we, don't, we don't really want you here. And their reaction to it isn't to say, well, maybe I should relook my ideas, or you know what, it's your right to not like my ideas. They are essentially reaching for a law that says, no, you must sit here, and you must listen to me, and you must do what I say, otherwise, I'm going to, I'm going to sue you. Hmm. And when and this is and this just really kind of shows how far certain political movements are willing to go in order to essentially hijack the the conversation and make sure that their opinion is rammed down our throat no matter what we think of it and even if they have to disregard the rights of the very people who they claim to represent and whose freedoms they supposedly say they want to protect so basically you you have the right to freedom Unless you freed them wrong by denying them the kind of platform and attention that they want. Yeah. Convenience, right? Like you're, you have freedom of speech until it's inconvenient for me. So if you and I own a building and we're downtown and someone um, comes up and spray paints on the side of our building, um, evil racist message. Whose responsibility is that? Most places in the Western world, it's the building owner's responsibility to take down the graffiti take down and there's usually a timeline when it gets reported that that graffiti has got to come down and you know racist message has to be painted over taken down whatever that's the business owners but in social media there seems to be a no accountability for the business owner to take down the racist message and so if that's their property albeit digital to me it makes the most sense that much like a property owner in greg and shane's property inc that it's our responsibility to take down the graffiti it's take down the racist message it should be the responsibility of the business owner to take that stuff down as per the government says in all places is that fair for you i would say that's fair and what we can't have is we can't have our and also again that it's our building so if we want that racist message off of it we can't have someone coming in and saying no you're not allowed to do that because someone had a political statement with that racist message and now everyone must see it nope yeah. our building we paid for it. We maintain it. We have a responsibility to our customers. That message is gone. That's End right. of story. Yeah. Yeah, that's, and that's true too, right? Oh, it's free speech. They can say what they want. No, it's not. It's my wall. It's not your wall. Oh, it's fascinating. Okay, so the link is up at shiftheads.ca on the Facebook group. Follow that group. Be a part of it. And you too can share stories just like Greg Fish's with the world of weirdthings.com. Thanks, Fishy. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.